I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. today with Hikari Yokoyama, uh, who's an art and fashion entrepreneur and one of the founders of Paddle 8. Uh, it's great to see you here in London, actually appropriately in the middle of Fashion Week. Thank you. It's <laughs> great to be here in London. <laughs> no, it isn't great to be in London. We're just complaining how horrible London is at the yeah. moment with traffic and madness. That comes with the territory. But if, it was, if the weather was good, then it would probably, wouldn't want it. There'd be no creative people here, Exactly. (laughs) Um, So tell me a little bit about Paddle 8, uh, because, you know, surprisingly, it seems that every other aspect of um, the human life has been digitized and Mm. changed by technology. Mm. The art world seems to be one of the last holdouts on innovation. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I think the experience of art is such an embodied experience. even if you're looking at a picture, a photograph, or digital, something that's made with digital means, it, you, an artist is making it, you interpret it through your eyes, through your body, the size of your body, the size of the space around it, whatever, the framing, um, all of those things all give context to it, so it's quite difficult to divorce art completely from that embodied, you know, it's all about your perception of your eye, and how tall you stand, and all right. those kind of considerations. But I think that, the flip side is that obviously the business side of, of art has a huge potential to gain from using technology just like any other industry um, and what we realized was that the art world was using technology in, in kind of very clunky ways like sending PDFs and JPEGs and doing a lot of Dropbox folders and that there was another way that we could provide some kind of tools that would allow people to connect um, within the marketplace to be able to buy and sell art. This is, I think, even more appropriate now because of the globalized nature of art. Um, mm. You know, it's not just like you have sort of a, some regional collectors who follow you. Like, you, when you become famous, you become globally famous. But that creates pain points, I guess, for collectors. Well, I think that I think that it's interesting because I think that yeah, the I mean, it's great that the art world has become so globalized. And then the flip side is everyone has to travel everywhere all the time and you always feel like you're missing out on something else and there's always another biennial to go to or another fair or this and that. Um, We, I think, are... What we can do, though, is really connect in terms of the marketplace. So whereas normally people would have to go through a middleman to be able to find a buyer for a work, um, we can kind of connect people directly. And also, a lot of the people that we work with maybe are not at the uber, uber level of collector and so they are not necessarily they don't really have the time to travel to an art fair all the time or to go to New York during the opening shows of September and they they want to have access to artwork as well and they can go on our website 24-7 and with one click put a bid on a piece of art and feel like oh wow I just you know that might end up on my wall Do you think that the same thing is happening in art that's happened in other industries in that technology creates almost this winner-takes-all game. So uh, there are no sort of neighborhood opera singers anymore. You're either a rock star or no one knows about you. Uh, I do think so. I think it's like, because we're a peer-to-peer marketplace, our validity is based on, I mean, we do curate, so we don't take everything that people offer to us in the way that eBay takes everything. But 
it's our strength is the network is stronger the more people are participating. So our, the value of our company and the value of what we do becomes greater the more people use our services. So ideally, all our competitors could die. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though, we're talking about collecting at a time when, you know, for a lot of the next generation, ownership is a concept that's becoming a bit more nuanced. Uh, people don't necessarily want to own things in the same way. Um, when it comes to physical assets, how is it changing in the art world? How are people seeing ownership differently? Well, I think this whole idea, idea of ownership is something I'm really fascinated by, and I think it stems also from the way we think and the way we hold on to information. So, for example, I'm, I grew up on the cusp of kind of digital technology. Like, I didn't grow up with a computer, but I had it from the age of 14 on, and I didn't have a cell phone until I was about 21. And I think people before that generation, if you were learning things, you would learn the actual facts and knowledge, and you would store that in your brain. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, I don't remember information about anything. I just remember how to access it, and where I stored it, or what the right search terms are to put into Google or Wikipedia. Right. And I know that I, you know, if I've seen something, I can always go back to that as a reference point. So that whole idea of how we're thinking about, we actually are kind of like, taking things in, processing them, and then putting them out, but we're not actually accumulating stuff. And of course... You, you sort of, you've got a sense of the map of the territory of, yeah. of the information without actually knowing what's behind it. Yeah, exactly. And I think some people would very disagree with this, like a surgeon or you know, an academic historian or something like that. But I would say generally the average person is not collecting information in the same way that they would have 20 years ago. And I think that also applies to possessions. Um, so for example, and that is a combination of a result of consumerism, globalization, so many different things. But, you know, same with clothes. I mean, you could look at fast fashion and people will buy something and they think, you know, maybe I'll wear it a few times and then I give it on to my sister or throw it away or give it to a charity shop. Or, or, or they'll stream it on like Rent the Runway. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, even with careers, you know, I read somewhere that the, the average person coming to the market today will be have seven careers before the end of their life. You know, my parents, you picked one job and you stuck with it your whole time. Um, so I think that also applies to things like art, where I think, or furniture, or, or houses, or all those kind of things. I think people value experience and they want to be engaged with and surround themselves with things, beautiful things, meaningful things, whatever, but they're not as concerned. There's not this idea of holding on to it and passing it on to the next generation. It's more about seeing yourself as evolving and things come in and out of your life um, without too much, with, with a lower level of attachment, I would say. Do, do you think that applies to high net worth individuals, you know, who, who've often yeah. used art as a form of status communication? Well, I think, I mean, obviously I'm speaking from perspective working in the luxury sector, so my perspective is focused on that. I think right. it's obviously different for a lot of different people. But I definitely, I think even for people who don't have a lot of money, even let's say my sister, you know, she's not really concerned about buying a furniture set. She's more interested in going to grad school, learning something, then going to Brazil, doing a residency there, then going, you know, like to, to accumulate objects is not as important. At the same time, I think that you want to, you know, if you are living in one place and you are settled, you want to surround yourself with things that are real and that have a sense of integrity and authenticity and have meaning, which is why living with art is so great as opposed to living with a poster or a printout of a piece of art. And I think um, Paddle kind of offers both of those experiences. So we're adding liquidity to the market, but uh -huh. at the same time, where maybe it wouldn't be there, like for example, with emerging art, but we're also giving people an opportunity to enter the marketplace who otherwise wouldn't be able to because 
galleries only want to sell to the top, top collector. Uh, Christie's and Sotheby's aren't really catering towards you. They're catering towards like that billionaire over there. Um, and, and that's where I think we have a big opportunity. What, what's, your, what's your take on digital editions? Uh, this, this has um, sort of been a trend I've noticed um, recently. I have noticed that. And I would say 99%, I mean, art really can take any form. So there's art that is not totally immaterial. There's art that's like a, you know, Duchamp's uh, urinal. There's or his empty gallery. Well, yeah, exactly. Or like, you know, a light installation where there's actually nothing tangible. So I think an artist can use digital medium to make an artwork. I think when you take an artwork that was made as a painting or as a print or as a sculpture and you try to just capture that and put it, make it digitally, to me that's not really good art it's just deri it's derivative it's like merchandise it's merchandising you know it's like um, it's, it's not really the, the original idea that the artist would have intended right um, it's interesting when you when you talk about merchandising there's been this long fraught relationship between luxury brands and art mm -hmm. um, you know in this new consumer society that we're in that's becoming more sophisticated what, what is the role of art as it links to brands well, I think this is a really important question and I think what I've learned through a lot of trial and error through different consulting or different projects I've worked on is that the making of the art should be kept completely separate from the brands and that whole business and the way it's going to be amplified and all of that. However, you know, it's kind of impossible to separate things entirely. Like if you get commissioned to do a piece for something, you're obviously aware of who's commissioning you, where it's going to be shown, all of that. Um, but I do think the, w the thing that brands have that's quite interesting is that they have huge audiences and amplification power. Yeah. And I think that the arts can really benefit from that because um, they ha the fashion brands have, like, or even luxury brands have a kind of captive audience who look to uh, luxury brands for a sense of values um, and it's become more nuanced than I think just the value is I want to show off I'm rich. There's different values in different brands, whether it's about being more interested in the future, whether it's about more looking at the past, whether it's about philanthropy, whether it's about uh, being like rebellious, whether it's about... And do you think as consumers we try to cherry pick those values to represent ourselves? Well, I mean, I think... So again, when I grew... I'm speaking from personal experience. When I grew up, the way you dress and what you consumed was like, it was representative of what your interests already were. So it's like, if you were interested in hip hop, you'd wear baggy jeans and the cap. And if you were into like smashing pumpkins, you'd wear like silver vinyl trousers and like black lipstick. <laughs> and you kind of had to identify and stick with that. And if you didn't stick with it wholeheartedly, you'd be called a poser and it was like you were being fake. Nowadays, I don't think that people really, and this is the access generation, so we have access to everything all the time. We have access to all information, all music, all films, I mean, give or take. And so I think that's the same for identity, is like people can, identity is becoming like a modular structure where you pick and choose what you want, and then you can take what you want from different aspects. So um, brands, I think, are part of that as well. And I think, um, you know, people, people can really kind of take what they want from, from those different brands as well. And so you think our art brings some authenticity to that process for a brand? Well, I don't really think that... I mean, I don't really know if... 
mean, brands, of course, are big businesses, so they need to make some kind of money from whatever thing, whatever they would invest in. Which is also why I think it's quite tricky when brands and art collaborate. Yeah. But for example, you know, I'm working with Gucci, who partners with Freeze Masters, right. so they're sponsoring this art fair, and there's a lot of extra stuff beyond just the fair booths, like uh, artist talks, curator tours, um, special kind of experiences, and. Gucci really, if they didn't put their money into that, that wouldn't happen. It would be like purely commercial. And so that's kind of interesting because Gucci's not saying we want to have a role in shaping what's shown or what kind of artist, but we want to provide the support structure from which these thinkers and creators can then speak out or connect with a much wider audience than otherwise which they would is, be able to. Which is to. much more interesting than just putting their logo everywhere, right? Exactly. I mean, that's where I think, I think uh, brand collaborations with artists fail is when because brands and artists speak a very different language. Like an artist, uh, if it's a good artist, has total control over their process. Even if they're collaborating with other people, that's a, like a willing choice and a conscious decision. Yeah. And brands are used to, if they're giving the money, it's kind of like hired help. So if they hire a director to make the campaign, they can say, oh, we like this lighting or we want this actress. And so those two languages of creative process really don't mix in the right way, which is why I think it should be quite kept quite separate. But brands can actually really support the arts in a meaningful way and gain um, from, you know, again, that the, the audience of art overlapping with the audience of fashion or ideas that are presented in art, which maybe you can't really explore in fashion because fashion has to sell and it's about the body. Like maybe that's, you want to explore ideas about perception or maybe you want to explore ideas about I don't know, like his historical moment in art and what it meant in terms of politics, or maybe you want to explore, like, you know, a Japanese uh, perspective in like the 1970s. I don't know. There's infinite. I mean, that's that's why I'm interested in art and especially contemporary art because basically there there's contemporary art for anything you're interested in. I guess one consequence of that, of that and we were talking a little about this before, is that maybe we don't have movements anymore mm-hmm. um, because things are so discrete, complex dispersed and people can select to some extent their own individual identities yeah I mean I think also it's just a factor of globalization as well so before you know I studied art history and it was all about this is the canon and this is the avant-garde that was like pushing against the canon and that kind of flip-flopped back and forth all the way through to like let's say the 1950s or 1960s you know some even up till then minimalism was a response to abstract expressionism Um, but I think now, again, because we have access to all this information, all this history, and all these different things, there's so much, you have an option of what you can choose to respond to. So it's no longer, there's a predominant ideology, and then you have to, whatever you do is kind of reactive to that. It's like, right. you can choose any ideology to either collaborate with, or rebel against, or define yourself against. So. How do you know that itself is not a movement? Well, I don't know. Like I think post postmodernism. Yeah, maybe. But I think I don't know. I think it's going to be. I'm really curious in a hundred years to see how they will write art history today. I mean, I know when I walk through an art fair and I see like hundreds of thousands of pieces of art, there's just no way that can all be included in history. No. Um, and I don't really see. I mean, there's obviously social groups of artists that kind of band together but even the nature of being an artist now has become totally peripatetic and they're traveling all around the world all the time doing different shows and even if maybe they went to art school and they have close friends it's not really like an artist based in London no. even at the kind of like starting out level 
is not really in London all that often. I mean, they have to really carve out time in the studio. I mean, maybe it's like being a musician nowadays or something. You have to... Maybe it's more like being a YouTube star. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the funny thing is, I think as a consequence of the interconnectivity of all of us today, yeah. is that to be famous at anything, uh, you you end up having to cultivate your own audience, yeah. but the audience also cultivates you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're kind of captured by your own fans. Well, and that is also an interesting. I mean, that's why it's. I think it's so difficult to be an artist that's really respected because you have to be totally aware of your audience and how your work will be perceived by others. But at the same time, you also can't let that shape or drive what you really want to say. So that's inherent contradiction and I know a lot of artists who struggle with that yeah. um, and that can that can be in terms of you know what you're actually making and the, the content and subject matter but that can also be about something as simple as the number of works you produce so if you're a really successful artist you have the ability to hire more assistants and produce more work and there's a demand for that work and so how do you balance that or um, yeah it's, I think it's I think it's quite I think there's generally I mean I feel like this way personally that there's just in fashion or in art, there's just so much being produced all the time that actually it would be a lot better if there were less, <laughs> less things. I mean, demand is always identified as like the best thing in capitalist uh, society, but actually, you know, when you look at artists in New York who, like Chuck Close, who I know, you know, he, he was saying in the 70s, it was like the least, it was like to be an artist was to be the biggest possible loser. It's like, your parents thought you were like an idiot, you'd never get laid, you'd have to eat shit food, you'd have to like, you know, live in a really bad part of town, and, and, but he just loved making art, and that allowed him to incubate this kind of style without any kind of judgment or self-awareness. I mean, obviously he's thinking about what he's making, but without thinking so much immediately what everyone else, right. and what everyone else wanted to get from him. And so he developed this painting style, which is totally not, you can't define it in terms of time and chronology or in terms of style to any other movement. It's like completely unique. But he had that incubation period. Because he, he had the, I guess, the privilege of being able to do it without the whole world watching him. Yes, evolve. yes, yeah. exactly. And I mean, I mean, yeah, I think, I think, I don't know. And then some people really respond to that, respond to that. Well, you, you wonder how, um, you know, to what extent uh, our visual culture is evolving because of things like Instagram. Yeah. You know, I think in many ways the general public are incredibly visually sophisticated yeah. now yeah. than they were in the past. And and it's even influencing, I know, the way collectors think. You know, yeah. Instagram's become a big force and yeah, well, the way galleries engage. Well, probably, I mean, couldn't have happened without visual acuity uh, evolving. Because yeah. I think people much, much more now can look at an image on a computer and understand what it would translate to in real life. I remember the story that someone told me of like when Europeans were going across um, the U.S. and uh, they brought a photograph of an apple to show to like a Native American person, and it just looked like a Rorschach blot. It was just totally illegible. All oh, right, so they couldn't process it. They couldn't read it as a representation of an apple. So uh -huh. I think that help that definitely helps. And I think, but I think more and more and more, our brains are connected to. The internet, the cloud, the all these. But I mean, you know, Instagram is part of that. So you don't necessarily have to be there, but you can feel like you were there because you're seeing different yeah. people posting on it. I mean, I'm obsessed with Instagram. I think it's amazing. It, it, uh, you know, it, it's changed things like food. I mean, yeah. people consume it. 
because you know, I'm half Chinese, you know, we, we always took pictures of our food. You, know? right, <laughs> you right, always right. see Chinese people in restaurants doing that. But now everyone does that. Right, right. And they, they're taking pictures before they even start eating. Right. <laughs> the thing is, the thing, but it's, I think this is true of any technology, is like, how do you want to use it? So I think that Instagram can be used in so many different ways. And I think that people use it, yeah, some, some ways can be a lot more useful and meaningful. And I think that's the thing now, whereas everyone kind of has a voice in terms of like public, uh, in, in terms of a wider audience. So you really have to think carefully about what the message is that you want to send or what what kind of things, like if you're posting things, that to me has like a ripple effect in the universe. So thinking about what, what you want to put out there is really important. Do, do you think that artists are struggling to sort of incorporate the changes of the digital world in the way that they uh, create their art and that definitely I mean I like, would to say, what extent they just I mean how do you make a meaningful comment even using these mediums well I would say from a process perspective I think artists are using a lot of technology in terms of like 3d rendering um, drawing programs editing I mean I just curated a show last year with Pat for Paddle and um, it was focused on young artists based in London and yeah. and then I was doing a bunch of studio visits with young artists in Berlin and all of them are making films so I feel like making films is kind of like the new, kind of what drawing was in the 20th century. So it's like a place where you can test out your ideas without worrying about like the commercial ramifications or worrying if someone's gonna, like it's not like a finished, polished, it's a study. Yeah. And everyone I think is using uh, filmmaking in that way, like because huh. they can record things easily, they can design music, and they, they can, can distribute it very things. easily. Yeah, but I, I don't even know if a lot... I mean, some people make films as part of their things to show, but a lot of artists are making films just as a process of working out their ideas. Huh. And also as a way to kind of, like, relieve from the stress of making a kind of perfectly finished sculpture. It's like, I can work on this film, and it's just for the sake of making it. It's not, you know, it's like, like a drawing. Like, a drawing needs to be for painting, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's quite interesting. And that's also interesting because film is obviously so much more dimensional than drawing, so you can incorporate drawing into a film, but you can also incorporate so many different things like sound and light and collaborations and movement and time, and there's so many, so many, it's, it's much more, it's much richer. Um, yeah, I mean, previously on the show I interviewed um, this guy called uh, Refik Anadol, who's like a, he's a data sculptor. Mm. And he said, you know, one of the things that he worries about as an artist is how do you create something that's going to be contextually relevant in 10, 15, 20 years? Right. And in a technological age, the only way you can do that is to, is to actually have data feed into the, into wow. the model. Wow, interesting. Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, I know a lot of collectors who bought, you know, who invested in kind of uh, new media art is what you would call it as a genre. <laughs> On CD-ROMs. Like, well, they have like signed Blu-ray discs and things <laughs> like that that are basically disintegrated. So it's, I mean, but that, in a way, I think, you know, Nam Jun Paik, who started kind of, is the most well-known and started the, really took video art to another level. That whole idea of working with that kind of technology was the idea of going against object-based art, which is immediately... Uh, has to like take on a kind of value and money and this and that and and because it's like a unique object it's like very elitist so if you make video art if you make digital art it's accessible to everyone I mean I think that's echoed in a way with like the ethos of Silicon Valley and the change they want to make changes they want to make in the world like technology is about access for everyone it's kind of egalitarian yeah and so I think 
when people try to make, that's why I think digital editions, they're trying to really monetize that. And actually, that medium is meant to be reproducible, easily accessed. Creating false limited editions is a bit weird, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. I think so. Yeah. And I think that actually people should just go with that as, like if you're a digital artist, you should just go with that and, and respect the medium than trying to sh yeah. shape the medium in a way that can be commercialized. Um, and also understand that it's ephemeral because technology is evolving faster and faster and faster. So, you know, like those signed Blu-ray discs, it might not even, someone might own it, might not even be able to like look at it anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, we seem to always go back to that debate about the value of art in a time of mechanical reproduction. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole Walter Benjamin thing that, like what is, is something valuable because it's limited or is it valuable because it's ubiquitous? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. But I would say, for me, it is valuable. That's what I'm saying, that I don't think, like Padalea is providing access to art, but you can't replace art as like an embodied experience. So when you have a, an experience with an artwork, and I think contemporary art should be seen as a catalyst for an experience, as opposed to kind of wrapped up, perfectly explained explain thing, or somewhere between music. I mean, I just went to the Tate Modern show of Agnes Martin, oh, right. and she said that, you know, people expect an emotional response from music, but they demand an explanation for anything that's art, that's classified as art. And it's, I think art can should have that kind of, that visceral embodied uh, experience as well. Um, and so that to me is what makes it valuable, is if people have that kind of a feeling and also, you know, and some people, you know, maybe like one, one person likes one piece of art and says so valuable to them, but that, what makes a market for, for a work of art is if many, many people just have that experience in different ways. Yeah. So it's that, tried and true. And that very much fits into what you were saying earlier about this new experience economy. Yeah. For people who don't want to own things, they want to have, you know, unique and differentiated experiences. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think, I mean, a lot, it's interesting, even things like Uber or, I mean, this is all about, or Airbnb, it's all about the idea of, Maybe you have something and you and you use it, but you and you enjoy it and whatever. But then you you can also find a way to like let it go into the universe rather than put it in, into storage. Um, of course, I think there's amazing collectors who are never would resell things and who are building a huge collection as like a legacy and they have a museum where they're going to give their work to a museum. But for the rest of us, I think that it's better to be able to to have something that you feel represents like you know what I was talking about like a sense of integrity or a sense of meaning and then also have the idea that it can be passed on when it's no longer serving you in that same way. So does this mean we're going to see an Airbnb of artwork? Uh, I don't think it could work that way. I mean I know there have been businesses where they try to either do a fund where everyone invests and then everyone can borrow pieces of art from each other from the, from the yeah. overall collection but I don't think it will work that way. Um, I think that you have to really look after art and it just, I don't know, I don't know how that would work. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what are you most excited about? Uh, in terms of, well, I mean, a lot of things. I mean, I think I'm excited because I think that, I mean, basically I think the world is always evolving and especially now and it's exciting to not really know what the future will be exactly and not be able to predict that. But also I feel like, I mean, this is why I love Paddle 8 so much is being in a kind of culture, like a startup culture, is it's all about fluidity and, and evolving and constantly looking at the world around you and then adapting your business model to fit what the, 
what's happening. But you know, when we started, I didn't think that we would necessarily be auctioning off like uh, Japanese toys, or I didn't think that we would be uh, collaborating with like Bono and uh, Johnny Ives, like to do a sale of like all these designed objects that they'd made, or you know, like there. So you just have to. I like that open-mindedness about working in this kind of a culture. Thank you very much for being on the show. <laughs> it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com/slash-between-worlds.